Thanks for listening to the Mornings with Carmen LaBerge podcast, made available thanks to support from listeners just like you. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. If we're gonna fly, we fly like eagles, arms out wide. If we're gonna fear, we fear no evil. We will rise by your power. We will go by your spirit. We are bold. If we're gonna stand, we stand as giants. If we're gonna walk, we walk as lions. Good morning. Good morning on this 12th of January, 2023. I'm Carmen LeBurge. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen here on the Faith Radio Network. Today's Growing Your Faith verse of the day comes from Psalm 37, verses 3 to 5. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your ways to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will do this. So these verses um, sound maybe at first like, God's going to give us whatever we want, whatever we desire. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart, right? God wants you to be happy. God wants to give you whatever you want. Well, that's not actually what these verses say. So these verses say, take delight in the Lord. Commit your ways to the Lord. Trust in the Lord. And then... And then, conditioned upon your trusting God, conditioned upon committing your ways to God, conditioned upon taking delight in God, honoring, respecting, bringing joy to God, delighting in the Lord, then, then he will give you the desires of your heart. Then he will do this. There's a conditionality to these verses that we would prefer to ignore. We don't like to think about conditions that God places on uh, our relationship with him. But God has established clear boundaries for relationships. Uh, Because even as God is love, God is holy. And so God can't abide sin of any kind in his presence. And even as God is merciful and slow to anger, God is equally just. And so he cannot and does not abide sin of any kind in any measure in his presence. And so in his infinite wisdom and by his extraordinary grace, God has done everything necessary to offer us a way back into relationship with him, a way back into his holy presence, back into his good graces, back into fellowship with him where all blessings flow. But you actually have to turn to him, receive the relationship that he's offering and its conditions. And then, then, then God will give you the desires of your heart. So this is not to say that you have to do anything to earn the free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. Certainly not. God has done everything that's necessary to save you. But just like any gift, you have to receive it. You have to accept it. You have to unwrap it. You have to put it on and learn to walk in it step by step, moment by moment. You literally have to put on Christ. You have to abide in him. God's grace is free, but it, it's not cheap. So ask yourself today, are my heart's desires the desires of God's heart? Are my heart's desires the desires of God's heart? 
Because here, here's the reality. If you're taking delight in the Lord, then the desires of your heart are going to be conformed to the desires of his heart, which means that when you ask him for what you desire, you're asking what you already know is in perfect accordance with his will. So that's what this verse is saying. Take delight in the Lord. Find your life in the Lord. Allow the desires of your heart to be conformed to the desires of God. And then as you ask, God's going to give you the desires of your heart because they're already the desires of his heart. So are your heart's desires the desires of God's heart? Do you know his good, pleasing, and perfect will? Well, how, how could I know God's good, pleasing, and perfect will, you ask? Well, um, you get yourself into the Word of God, the Bible, the Scriptures of the Old and New Testament. Paul talks about um, how our minds are transformed, renewed by the Word of God, and that um, when our minds are transformed and renewed by the Word of God, we then can know God's perfect and pleasing will. And if you're saying to yourself, well, I've prayed, um, I've prayed out my heart's desires, and I feel like those desires should be the desires of God's heart because, after all, I've prayed for good things. I've prayed for, um, I've prayed for healing, and I've prayed for marriage, and I've prayed for reconciliation, and I've prayed for children, and I've um, prayed for justice. So why? Why? Why hasn't God answered my prayer, given me the desires of my heart? First of all, let me just affirm it's not unfaithful to ask the question. It's not unfaithful to ask the question. Um, But in asking, we find ourselves kneeling with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in deep anguish. I mean, keep in mind, Jesus was perfectly in the Father's will. Jesus certainly took delight in the Lord. And yet, and yet, God the Father did not give God the Son what he asked in that moment. And in submission to the will of the Father, not my will but thine be done, Jesus committed his way to the Father. He trusted in him, and he did the hardest thing that anyone will ever do. He suffered an unjust death for the sins of others so that you and I could be justified. So take delight in the Lord today, for he is good. Take delight in the Lord today and commit your ways to him. Take delight in the Lord today and trust in him. And then, as the desires of your heart become aligned with the desires of God's heart, and as you pray, not my will, but thine be done, you will certainly receive the desires of your heart. We're going to talk next with Ben Johnson about the confusion in Congress and the confusion at the very heart of man. Can you imagine for a moment that a member of Congress could testify in hearings on the floor of Congress yesterday using Bible verses to support her vote that medical care not be provided to children born alive after botched abortions? Yeah, that happened in America. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. This is my right. A right given by God. To live a life to live in freedom Ben Johnson is back you can find him at washingtonstand.com 
Ben, would you read us in on House Resolution 26 and tell us what happened yesterday in the U.S. House of Representatives? Well, it was a good day for life yesterday in the House. Uh, Two resolutions passed, one of them condemning the uh, spate of abortions, uh, assaults on uh, pro-life uh, abortion activists, assaults on pro-life facilities, pregnancy centers, and churches, uh, listing a hundred of them in the resolution and affirming the right to life. But HR 26 is really the substantive part of the agenda. It's the uh, it's a measure, the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act, which says that if a child's born alive during a botched abortion, that uh, abortionist has to provide the same level of life-saving care that a doctor would provide to any child of comparable age wherever the child was born. So uh, if a child's at a certain gestational age uh, and the child is born alive, whatever you would do to save a child of that age, the abortionist must do it. It's already illegal for uh, a child to be killed after uh, after a botched abortion. As we know, that was what was happening with Kermit Gosnell. But there is no federal law which says what a doctor proactively has to do to save the life. So uh, we know from uh, Governor Ralph Northam in Virginia and from uh, other uh, other members in the abortion industry, including uh, one undercover abortionist in St. Paul, uh, who said that uh, if a child were born alive, uh, he would either let it die or would actively take measures to end the child's life. So it's still going on. This affirmatively would say you have to save the baby's life. And that passed yesterday um, in the House. That's right, with bipartisan support. So um, you and I have both um, seen and heard the testimony of one member of Congress from West Michigan. Um, and she very, you know, emotionally shared, um, referencing her own recent experience of navigating what she described as a complex miscarriage. She referred to that child um, accurately as her daughter. She then went on to describe herself as having chosen life. And this is what she said. As a pro-choice Christian, I chose life. Um, This issue is so personal to me. My faith informs my actions, but it doesn't dictate the policy of an entire nation. And further, when I read the scripture, I turn to passages. I'm guided by the passages like Jeremiah 1.5. I knew you before I formed you and I placed you in your mother's womb. Um. I find it stunning that someone who voted against H.R. 26, um, a person who is pro-choice, um, chose to use a passage of Scripture that so clearly describes God as sovereign over human life and placing, forming a child and placing that child in the mother's womb and using that somehow as a strange argument to vote that children born alive after an abortion should not be supported with medical care. Like I, I'm, I'm like, I'm gobsmacked. I don't, I don't know what else to say. Yeah. uh, Well, it's uh, truly an inversion of the scripture in every way. Uh, First of all, she, she misquoted the scripture that the word mother does not appear anywhere in the verse uh, in, in the actual Hebrew, Greek or Latin manuscripts. Uh, So she's, she's twisting the verse to begin with. But she goes on to say, since it says uh, the child was placed in the mother's womb, it doesn't say the government's womb or the speaker of the house's womb. So she's essentially saying that God gave you the right to abort your child. And you know, obviously, this is the opposite of everything, not only that uh, the entire scriptures say. Uh, we know that from uh, the entire corpus of scripture and the way it's been interpreted for 2,000 years, 
throughout Christian history, including the very earliest documents, which classify abortion alongside witchcraft. But it even goes against what that verse itself says. That verse is God reassuring Jeremiah that from his very conception, God's hands formed him and placed him. And essentially, that verse is saying that every life has dignity and purpose, and it has a God-given intentionality that uh, every one of us will fulfill the purpose that God has given to us. Uh, she is essentially saying that life is completely dispensable uh, at the whim of the mother. So uh, she's completely turning it inside out. You know, there, there was a young man uh, who's making his very first speech on the House floor, uh, Representative Nathaniel Moran, uh, who said, every life is a gift. Every life is a calling given by God. And that's basically what Jeremiah 1.5 says. Uh, I thought that the scriptures were well represented from her colleague from Michigan, uh, Representative Jack Berman, who represents uh, Bergman, uh, who represents uh, Traverse City. He cited Psalm 139 about how uh, you have knitted me together in my mother's womb, and I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. So that um, that is really the intention uh, of the scriptures is that God is the author of life. Uh, he instituted all of human creation. And his hands guide and form us from the womb, and his breath breathes his purpose into us and gives us the opportunity to use our free will to respond to his calling day in and day out until the very last moment of our lives. It's never too late to begin re uh, referring to him. And as this, uh, as this verse from the book of Jeremiah tells us, it's never too early to know we have a calling from God. Thank you, um, Ben, for bringing um, so many positive examples forward from the House floor yesterday. Um, we look forward to what you might be working on the uh, working on in relationship to this. We're reading what you're posting at WashingtonStand.com. We're going to return to our conversation with Ben Johnson here in just a moment. Um, there is something supplanting truth as the mission of American universities. What what might be supplanting the truth? in a school near you. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Sign up for the free Bible in a Year reading plan at MyFaithRadio.com and get everything you need to follow the plan each day and stay on track, including a printed schedule. Sign up now at MyFaithRadio.com. Continuing our conversation with Ben Johnson, you can find what he's writing at WashingtonStand.com. Um, all right. Um, read us in um, on this next issue. First of all, what is DEI and how is DEI supplanting truth as the mission at many American universities? Well, this is uh, truly kind of a heartbreaking story. DEI is the most potent uh, ideology that is uh, animating not only academia, but all of American life. Uh, you can see it referenced constantly by our government. Uh, came up in the news in the coverage of Pete Buttigieg in the way that he handled the Department of Transportation. But DEI stands for diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, these are concepts based on uh, critical race theory, uh, essentially saying that equity means that uh, if there is a group that doesn't have an equal amount of wealth comparative to other groups, then that group must be elevated through government action or, uh, in, in this case, academic action in order to have the exact same outcome as others. Not equal access or equal opportunity, but equality of outcome. And that's essentially uh, what we're talking about uh, is, is a, a form of policy that would say that certain groups have to be favored because of the accident of their birth. 
Okay, wait, say say it again. Because of the accident of their birth, could you could you repeat that part? Yeah, that's uh, that's uh, the way that John F. Kennedy always talked about uh, segregationism and laws that were based on race. He said people are being discriminated on based on the accident of their birth. It, it happens that uh, people are born in a, a certain skin color or or a certain ethnicity or uh, uh, into a family of a certain religious heritage, and that discrimination is based in uh, uh, particularly upon these uh, largely immutable factors. Okay, we can circle back around to that in the future because that that issue is not going away. I have another subject matter area that I'd love to lift up to you this morning from the headline news. Um, so there are top secret documents. There are documents that are marked in such a way that they are supposed to be compartmentalized. We've learned about that or we've been or that's been highlighted for us. Um, in no small measure because of the way the FBI raided the uh, Mar-a-Lago um, home of former President Trump in order to um, in order to bring back to the National Archives um, documents that were marked in this particular way. Um, and that's an ongoing investigation in relationship to the former president. But the current president, um, we now know, has the same kind of documents lying around kind of all over the place, um, at least in two completely unsecured locations, um, one of which we know, uh, a former uh, office space that he used prior to the White House when he was serving as a consultant and a lecturer um, for uh, a university in Pennsylvania, and another location that they have not yet uh, disclosed to us. But compartmentalized um, information, information about uh, what's going on around the world that that, you know, like they're kind of eyes only documents that people like the president are supposed to be able to see, but they certain they certainly shouldn't be in places that are um, unsecured. What, what's going on with the whole like, I don't know uh, what I might call it here, um, dueling document cases? Yeah, well, uh, this all uh, surfaced because of what happened at uh, Joe Biden's office at the Penn Biden Center, uh, where, as you mentioned, they found classified documents there from his time when he was vice president under Barack Obama. Okay, that's uh, kind of a not, long time ago. That's a long it, time for something to just be like sitting somewhere that it's not supposed to be sitting. Yeah, and what uh, people have pointed out is there's a, a slight difference here, at least uh, in, in the fact that President Trump, as a president, has the ability to declassify documents. And so the documents theoretically could have been declassified and he may have had them. A vice president never has that option. And so what he was doing with them in the first place has been called into question. And then, as you mentioned, just the, the number of places that he had them, he would have had them when he left office and then uh, at this Penn Biden Center at uh, the University of Pennsylvania. And then, as you say, some other undisclosed location uh, that uh, all of this information was floating around uh, with with uh, the allegations of uh, let's say, less than uh, fully above board uh, dealings with other nations. Uh, this this also plays into that narrative, whether it's accurate or not, that perhaps uh, this this was being used in some way uh, in in uh, those business deals. But we have uh, we right now what uh, what is really capturing the attention is the disparate uh, uh, action on the behalf on the behalf of the Justice Department as to whether or not um, yeah, there would be uh, a raid on the White House to try and bring this in. The uh, the president's defenders have said he immediately complied. He turned the documents over to the National Archives. But, uh, you know, quite candidly, that's like saying, you know, after I went 135 zone, then I immediately pulled over. Uh, it's not the compliance that's the issue. 
it's the violation in the first place. So what was he doing with them and why were they in so many places? Uh, that's the question. and has people raising questions uh, about uh, equality under the law. Yeah, and um, yeah, basic fairness in the application of the law as well. And I think that this is going to be an ongoing conversation we're likely to um, watch unfold. And I think that um, there are lots of good questions to be asking, not least of which, um, like, do we have a problem uh, here in the United States of America with information that should be contained in very specific places and and only um, accessed by certain individuals, do we have a problem here in America with that information being um, in places it should not be and potentially um, open to people who should not be able to access it? So, um, hey, thank you, as always, Ben, for joining us. Um, we appreciate the conversation. You guys can read what uh, Ben is writing at WashingtonStand.com. He's got a number of articles posted right now um, in relationship to the conversations that we've been having earlier in the week about um, the abortion pill being now available through the FDA um, at pharmacies across the United States of America. Um, so you should read in um, on all of that. Ben, as always, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Thank you and God bless. Likewise. This is Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBurge. You're listening to Faith Radio. You got something to say. Hey, um, great questions on the text line this morning. Remember, you can text me during the show, 877-933-2484. One friend asking, well, how many abortions are botched in the United States? Like, how how many people survive abortion? Um, That's an excellent question. It reminds me that we have had a conversation here with Melissa Odin. Melissa is an abortion survivor um, back in 1977, um, her biological mom, who was a 19-year-old college student, um, had a uh, saline infusion abortion that was meant to end Melissa's life, and that didn't happen. And um, Melissa uh, talks about that on a regular basis and has written a book about it. She's also a part of something called the Abortion Survivors Network, and you can find their stories and information if you're interested in um, in following up on this subject matter area, remember the the legislation before Congress, um, you know, is this House Resolution Twenty Six. If you want to read the stories of people who have survived abortion, like this, um, this legislation is relevant specifically to them and their own life experience. You could check out what's happening at abortionsurvivors.org. I'll put all the links in the show notes today. Um, remember, you can get those show notes at myfaithradio.com, or you can get them um, if you. Subscribe to the Mornings with Carmen podcast wherever you subscribe to your podcast. So there you go. Um, So what's next? Well, we're going to talk about matters of life and death. You've probably heard somebody say, it's a matter of life and death. Well, is it really? What are the matters of life and death? During the Sanctity of Life Month, we're talking a lot about um, what it means to be pro-life for all of life. You know that I am pro-life from conception to natural death. Um, What does natural death mean these days? Um, How much can you do to support natural death? What is palliative care and how does that differ or how is it differentiated from active euthanasia or assisted suicide? And who knows how to answer those questions? Well, John Wyatt knows how to answer those questions. Um, He's the author of Matters of Life and Death. He's also the host of the podcast by the same name. He writes extensively on this subject matter area. And so we're going to talk about 
Matters of Life and Death, next. John Wyatt is joining us now. His expertise is in the area of matters of life and death. That is the title of his book and the name of his podcast. John, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. So um, we have a lot of conversation going on now um, about euthanasia, about assisted suicide. But I'd like to start with a conversation about um, sort of a new field, at least over the past I don't know, five or six decades, a new area of medicine called palliative care. Because I I want us to talk about what palliative care is and, you know, its Christian foundations, and then have a conversation about how that is different from and differentiated from euthanasia and assisted suicide. Could we do that? Absolutely. These are issues really close to my heart, things I, I care passionately about. So delighted to have this conversation. So what is palliative care um, and then differentiate it uh, for us from the right to die movement? Yeah, so what happened was um, a remarkable lady um, called Cicely Saunders, who was a, who was converted to Christ as a young uh, student. And um, she became a, a nurse in, in London and she started caring for dying people and she felt that God was calling her into this field because at the time the care of dying people was really very limited and inadequate and, and most doctors just had were not interested and and uh, you know somebody was dying that was it nothing we could do move on to the next patient and Cicely Saunders w- drew uh, other people around her and she became uh, she went back and trained as a as a medical social worker and then she trained as a doctor and became a physician and uh, she became a world specialist in the care of dying people. She really invented this discipline, which is now called palliative care. And what she uh, she used the very best medical uh, research about pain relief. She, in fact, conducted a number of research studies on ways of using um, medication, drugs to control pain. But she realized that the issues were much wider than just physical pain. Um, she uh, so so she was really the the founder of of this and a, a remarkable movement. In fact, people came all over the world, including from the states, to come and learn from her. She created a, a custom uh, designed hospice for dying people, and the fascinating thing was that she saw that spiritual care was an absolutely central part of the care of dying people. In fact, she said that the person who is dying has what she called total pain and total pain is not just physical pain uh, they do have physical pain often because of whatever the disease process is cancer or something else but in addition there's psychological pain sort of feelings of despair and depression going on in their head there's relational pain very often relationships are damaged and, and often the pain that people have at the end of life is often related to broken relationships and then there's spiritual pain many people at the end of life are struggling with 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 a deep anguish to do with spiritual issues sometimes to do with guilt um, that they feel they've never been forgiven or they're worried about meeting their maker and and uh, for feelings of guilt and maybe they just feel that life is purposeless and so 
Cecilia uh, Saunders said we need to address all of these four types of pain, physical, psychological, relational, and spiritual. And she demonstrated that if you could do this properly in a genuinely compassionate and caring way, not only could you control the pain, but that often those last hours, days, weeks, months of life could be transformed into something incredibly positive, that, that, that dying well was an opportunity. And so one of her slogans was, not only will we help you to, to die in peace and in dignity, but we will help you to live before you die. Um, John, you just used a reference there to dying well. Um, describe a good death. Well, you know, I've uh, had the privilege over the years, both as a physician just and as a friend, of, of caring for and walking alongside people as, they, uh, as they've been dying um for many for many years and you know the extraordinary thing is that dying well can be a kind of adventure you know i've seen the most extraordinary things happen and i've heard stories from other people of, of um of relationships being healed of people finding forgiveness of um uh, being able to fulfill dreams uh, of letting go of, of healing relationships in families um, the fascinating thing is that when someone is dying, they have a kind of what I would call it a relational authority. They can actually say, you know, I'm dying. I haven't spoken to my son for 30 years. The last time we had this terrible argument, he stormed out of the house. I've never seen him since. And now I'm dying. And could someone contact my son and say, before I die, I want to be reconciled. I want to have that last conversation. And, and it happens. And so, so dying well, Yes, there are real issues and challenges, but it, you know, it can be an opportunity. And if I could be forgiven a little plug, I've actually written a book called Dying Well, uh, which, which talks about these stories in greater detail and, and gives suggestions for someone who is themselves facing the end of their life. I'm so glad you mentioned that because obviously that's what I'm pointing to. So um, John Wyatt has uh, several books you're going to be interested in. One is Dying Well, where he uh, recounts these some of these stories and how um, the end of life can be a good death and a great adventure. Um, he has a book called Right to Die, Euthanasia, Assisted Suicide, and End of Life Care, uh, and also Matters of Life and Death, Human Dilemmas in the Light of the Christian Faith. And you can find all of that and more of what John's writing about at johnwyatt.com. Um, John, I actually find it a little bit curious that you um, write so much and pay so much attention to the end of life because your initial expertise as a, as a physician is like at the beginning of life, right? I mean, That's a, right. neo, That's a right. neo, neonatalist that focused on like making sure um, or preventing brain damage in newborn infants. Like talk with us for you about the connection between the beginnings <laughs> of life and then the end of life. Yeah. Well, in fact, of course, there are lots of connections between the beginning of life and end of life at, at a sort of medical level. Um, I did have the privilege of caring for probably many thousands of babies, including some incredibly tiny premature and little vulnerable babies, premies as they call them. But uh, I also, sadly, you know, we can't care for every, we can't help every baby live. And, and over the years, I've cared for a whole number of babies who were dying. And I realized that it was possible to translate these principles that Cicely Saunders had developed for 
uh, adults who were dying of cancer and so on, it was possible to translate exactly the same principles into caring for a dying baby. And so I, I emphasize the importance of, of what came to be called neonatal palliative care, using the same kind of principles, ensuring that every baby could die well. And for a baby to die at peace, pain-free, in the arms of loving parents, uh, is, a, is a triumph of neonatal care. Mm. I love that. And it's so, um, it's so real. It speaks to the, um, the concern, you know, of so many. Um, and yet it's something we don't often talk out loud about. And so thank you so much for that. You, um, so you, this is a positive, uh, this is a compliment. So I hope you take it as such. You're like an onion. Like there's a lot of layers here. Um, and we could keep peeling them back because if I were to read what you're writing, um, right now at johnwyatt.com, I would see just how fascinated you are with, uh, advances in AI and robotics and this interface between, um, you know, technology and the Christian faith and the human body. Yep, so, you know, right. maybe, maybe, <laughs> Maybe, uh, maybe just let's take a glancing blow at that. Sure. I mean, uh, we do live in a fascinating age, and uh, I, I love science. I love technology, uh, but I think it's really important for Christian people to understand and really grapple with what's going on in our world to try to understand it, and then to see how do we respond as Christians, as as followers of Christ. How do we respond in this amazing, mind-boggling world? I, you know, when I, I was a medical student in London back in the 1970s, <clears throat> and I started going to a big church in central London, All Souls Church, and John Stott was the rector. So John Stott, as I think many people will know, is one of the extraordinary Christian leaders of the 20th century. And he became a personal friend of mine. He became a kind of spiritual father. And, you know, at a human level, so much of what I'm doing now is because of him and his vision. And one of the things he, he used to teach and, and encourage us to do was what he called double listening. We, we had to listen to the Bible, we had to listen to the Holy Spirit, but at the same time we had to listen to the modern world and under, try and understand and listen to the questions and the issues that are being raised. So I've been trying to do that ever since. That's really been the guiding light for my life that God has put on my heart. All right. If you just go to johnwyatt.com to read his about page, it'll be worth the visit um, and uh, and a whole lot of fun. So let me encourage you to check out what John is writing about today um, and also the books that are available there as well. Um, John, when we come back, I'd like to uh, lift up a couple of questions that have grown out of our listening community. Um, one of them is just a very specific question about um, a, a person who has a coworker who has been through the process of watching an elderly family member die of dementia. And this coworker, who's only in his 50s, um, like he's already said, look, I know I'm genetically predisposed to follow a similar path. And and he has like laid out among his coworkers his intent to, um, you know, how he intends to end his own life, mm, you know, yeah, when he perceives yeah. himself to begin losing control. Can we talk mm. about like, how as a sure. Christian do I have a conversation with that individual? Sure. Um, so sure. we're gonna we're gonna return to that conversation here in just a moment. We're talking with Dr. John Wyatt, author of, among other things, Matters of Life and Death. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge, and this is Faith Radio. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. 
As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio. Tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. We are made, made in the image of, made in the image of God, beautiful shades of love. Continuing our conversation with Dr. John Wyatt, you can find him at John Wyatt, W-Y-A-T-T, JohnWyatt.com. Um, so, John, uh, here's a, this is a listener um, question that I'm, I'm going to frame out of a long story. So um, this individual has a co-worker. This co-worker has recently watched an elderly family member die of dementia. Um, he's in his mid-50s. He knows he's genetically predisposed to follow a similar path. And he has shared now with this Christian co-worker, um, you know, like his specific plan of how he intends to end his own life when he perceives himself to still be in control of his own faculties. Like that's the language, right? So yep. how might, you know, this this person is going to have an opportunity for a long-term overtime conversation with this other individual, but like, h- how do you even enter in? Mm, yeah. And, and, and of course, this is a really deep, heartfelt problem, you know, and I, I think our first responsibility always as Christian people is to try to empathize, to try to understand and enter into the pain. You know, sometimes people are very quick to say, well, that's wrong and that's, I don't believe in that and so on. But actually, we've just got to empathize first and say, this is incredibly hard. Dementia, you know, I watched my mother develop a, a horrible form of dementia and she was transformed in front of our eyes from this lovely, vivacious Christian lady into someone whose body was, was just a wreck. And it was desperately painful. And I remember just weeping, visiting her once and 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 just weeping at the at the way that she'd been transformed. So so this is a deep, deep, painful question. But you know, the extraordinary thing is that even in these deep uh, agony of, of dementia, God can redeem it, God can bring blessing, uh, surprising blessing and goodness out of terrible evil. And, and I've seen that happen in, in extraordinary ways. So, and also the spiritual care of dementia is really improving. There are, there's lots of new initiatives working out how to make contact with people in dementia, how to encourage them spiritually, how to enter into their world and their experience. So I do believe that we need to have a positive and life affirming approach. That doesn't mean to say that we try to keep people alive as long as possible. I mean, you know, my mother uh, developed uh, a, a severe infection at the end of life of her life, and we all agreed that the right thing to do was to let nature take its course. We weren't going to admit her to an intensive care and try and prolong her life unnecessarily. So there is a time to say enough is enough, but that is not the same as either suicide, where I destroy my own life, or euthanasia, mercy killing, where 
I give a lethal poison to another person. Both of those is basically to say life is pointless. Life has no value. And the only thing I can do is destroy it. And as Christians, you know, we can never say that. I can never say that my life has no value. I can never say to another person, you know what? Your life has no value at all. Um, and so what we're called to do is to, is to love, to show love. Love can penetrate into the deepest places, can penetrate through a dementia, can penetrate through agonizing uh, pain and distress. It's, it's human love which um, we are called to be there with people uh, who are, are struggling. There's a lovely quote that comes from a, a theologian called Joseph Piper, and he said, love is a way of saying to another, it's good that you're alive. It's mm. good that you're in the world. Mm, I love that. Um, I'm so glad you brought up um, the, the question of a lethal dose. So here in the United States, we are hearing that um, hospice workers are now showing up with the morphine prescriptions the first time that they visit and have that opportunity to, um, you know, share with a new hospice patient that, you know, these morphine prescriptions um, are available to you. Um, you can take as many as you want. There will be endless refills. Just, you know, let us know when you need more. And they are then telling people what constitutes a lethal dose. Now, there's two ways to view that. One, they're warning people, don't take too many because it's a lethal dose. On the other hand, they are um, equipping people with the information that they need um, to take enough of these pills to end their own life. Can you address this issue of a lethal dose? Yeah, that is that is really challenging and complex. You know, there is all the difference in the world between giving a medicine where the intention is to relieve pain and suffering and giving a medicine where the intention is to kill. Now, the first thing to understand is that euthanasia doctors, you know, it, it's, this is legal in some states in the USA, isn't it? It's certainly legal in mm -hmm. Canada. When they in, are intending to kill their patient or for the patient to kill themselves, they never use morphine. They use... Uh, other drugs which are designed solely to kill quickly and cleanly. Mm. And so the intention is to kill. The in and, um, and the intention is revealed by the drugs they choose to use. They, and they use drugs of the anaesthetist, drugs called uh, barbiturates and uh, muscle-paralyzing agents, which just instantaneously lead to death. Mm. Morphine is a much more complex issue because what Cicely Saunders proved, she was, did a lot of research in, in the use of morphine. She showed that when it's used properly, paradoxically, morphine doesn't shorten life. It actually increases life. And, and the reason for that is that often people at the end of life, they're in desperate agony. They, you know, I've seen people like this, they're admitted into hospital, they're in agony. They say, oh, just make it end, doctor, just, just, just kill me. I just, I don't want to carry on like this. But once you start the proper pain relief and the treatment's starting to get, you know, 12 hours later, the same person is sitting up in bed and saying, oh, I feel a lot better now. What's mm. for breakfast? Mm. So, so the, the paradox is that when these drugs are used properly and carefully and expertly, they uh, actually can do a great deal of good. And they certainly don't. They're not 
the intention is not to kill people, but these drugs can be abused. And, and therefore, I think what's called patient controlled medication in general is a good idea. And because it's been shown that if you allow patients to control the medication, normally, provided they've been properly cared for and instructed and so on, it works very well and it doesn't shorten their lives. But clearly, if you have a patient who is suicidal mm. and you're then giving them a drug which could kill them, then that's not in their best interest. You would never do that elsewhere in life. Here's this person who is threatening to take their life. and You say, oh, okay, here's the gun, do it yourself, do it properly. You know, we, mm -hmm. we wouldn't do that. And so in the same way, we want to protect people. Suicide is always damaging, in my opinion. It, it, mm -hmm. it, all, it is always something that is negative, that damages. It both damages the person because they destroy their own life, but it damages the relatives as well. I've seen the impact that a suicide has on relatives. It, it's never a good thing. Instead, the aim of palliative care is to control the symptoms while, while we allow death to occur naturally. Mm. What a delight um, to talk with you today. Thank you so much. I hope you have enjoyed yourself enough to come back. <laughs> yeah, it's been great. Yeah, I'd love, I'd love to come back. It's, it's been absolutely delightful. And, um, and we could just talk about whatever you're most currently writing, because now you have me all drawn in at johnwyatt.com about robots and AI and all kinds of other things. So thank you so much um, for being um, uh, such a beautiful Christian, such a wonderful witness, for bringing complex subjects um, down to a level that we can understand and talk about, and, and your willingness to, um, to engage with us. Thank you so much. Uh, it's my pleasure and privilege. Uh, God bless you. Likewise. That's Dr. John Wyatt. You can find him at johnwyatt.com. Check out Matters of Life and Death. Also, Right to Die and Dying Well. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. This is Faith Radio. All right. Um, I love you. If I haven't told you that yet this morning, the Lord, um, the Lord, our God loves you as well. Um, one sweet listener has texted in and she says, as a hospice nurse myself, I feel there are too many myths about death and dying in hospice. So thank you for having John Wyatt on this morning. Yeah, what a privilege, right, to be able to talk with Christian brothers and sisters from around the world with so many areas of expertise. We've got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith, click the link in the show notes to give now. And thanks.